0: to episode 48 of the daily growth discipleship podcast i'm chris Lambert,
1: and i'm josh havens and we're on a journey to learn what it means to live a lifestyle of discipleship we're glad you're joining us and hope that as you set aside this time for god that he would help you grow today in the everyday moments of life
0: and today we're going to be doing something a little bit different Today, we're not going to be talking to a guest as we normally do. We love doing that. Um, Today, Josh and I are just going to be having a conversation about step two and how to create a lifestyle of discipleship. And step two is practice the basics. Now, if you guys have been longtime listeners of the podcast, you know that one of our favorite questions to ask guests and to ask of life and practices that we do is the question, why? Why? So we wanted to ask the question why about some of the the most basic practices that we are taught and told to do in the Christian life. And so, like, one of those practices is studying Scripture. And then I'm going to go ahead and extend that into studying theology especially. If you are a really, really long-time listener of the Daily Growth Discipleship podcast, then you know, and we've talked about it before— Josh and I had a previous podcast called "Theology in Progress." Now, a lot of the stuff that we wanted to do in Theology in Progress has been incorporated into Daily Growth Discipleship. It's sort of the uh, it's it's sort of the natural outflow. It's what the it,
1: heartbeat behind everything has never changed. That's
0: right. It, it sort of birthed into this. Um, but we want to talk about theology because that's still we're still very very passionate about that. However. Many people, when we start talking about studying Scripture and studying and learning about theology, the question has to be asked, why? Why should we do those things? We know that maybe pastors and then professional academic theologians and things like that, people who write dusty books that appear to have nothing to do with our life as disciples, like that's for them, but not for us in the day-to-day life. Um, Well, that's not actually true. And so Josh and I are really, really passionate about that. We want to talk a little bit about how that stuff has impacted our own lives, but also to give you guys a little bit of a framework, a way of looking at studying scripture and theology as for how that actually does impact your day to day life. Because once you can see that, once you recognize that that's true, you begin to, uh, uh, a passion will begin to emerge in your heart and in your life for those things. And that, that's not to say that you're gonna probably go out and want to do these things every single day. But I think it will give you a, a new way of looking at these things to say, oh, wait a second. Maybe it's just the way that we've gone about it, maybe the way that we've talked about it in the past has sort of miscolored those things so they seem like they don't have anything to do with our lives. Where in fact, we're doing theology every single day. We live theology every single day. Day, and if you don't think you have a theology because you're not about that life, you're just about the life of following Jesus. Well, you have just articulated a particular theology.
1: I mean, it's really inescapable. You know, I, I think about uh, oh, who was it? Oh, it was uh, in uh, the opening to like the first Sherlock Holmes story that Arthur Conan Doyle wrote. Um, he just dis- he gives Sherlock this line, something along the lines of. Uh, I don't need to fill up my mind with things like astronomy and what other planets are out there because that doesn't affect how that, I, how I solve crimes and, and do those things. There's yeah. just not enough space in my mind. And I think sometimes we get so caught up in thinking, well, I mean, I've got my Christian life and then there's the rest of my life. We, we kind of segment things out. Yeah. And one of the things that we've come to learn, not just, not just know in our heads, but I think. You and I, Chris, have really come to learn and understand in our hearts there is no way that the Christian life can be anything except for the entirety of your existence. And so, when it comes to that, literally everything is on the table and pertains to how you live your life as a follower of Jesus.
0: Exactly. It's what it means to make him Lord of your life and to become a Christian is to make that switch, whereas everything has been subsumed. Under the life of Christ. And so we've got to figure out what that life looks like. Um, let me just give you a little bit of context here um, as to why I think, and I mean, other people have said this, it's not just me thinking it, um, as to why theology is in the state of life that it is right now. Because in the early church, basically, when you read the Bible, and N.T. Wright has is, is been famous for saying this, when you read the Bible, Paul is the first one who does Christian theology. So you're reading theology when you read the Bible, right? There was only the Old Testament. That was the Jewish scriptures. Jesus came, he lived, he died, he rose again, he ascended, all that good stuff. And now the church was left saying, what do we do now? So they, Pentecost happens, they go out and they start planting churches, preaching the gospel. People start getting saved, but then problems start coming up. Problems in life start coming up. So then what happens? Paul's out. He's journeying far across the Roman Empire, planting churches, and all of a sudden, he hears his beloved church back in Corinth is running into issues. Good old Corinth. They had lots of issues, <laughs> and so what does he do? He writes a letter to them, instructing them how they should go about solving or dealing with these issues, whether it's whether it's disputes, whether it's a uh, you know uh, weird sexual improprieties that are going on, all kinds of different stuff was going on in the, in the, in the Corinthian church. And we know that because we, we read the letters and we sort of infer what, what's happening. But um, so when Paul is saying, when Paul is giving this advice to the church, he is having to reach deep back into what he knows from the, the Jewish law, which demonstrates the heart and character of God knowing what he knows about the life of Christ from the other apostles who walked with him, lived with him, and he learned from.
1: And from his own time with Christ, whatever that looked like. Exactly,
0: and from his own time. He says, this is the best way of going about living and solving these issues. That is a theology lived out. So a lot of times when we talk about, like when we think about theology though, it's it's that first part. It's that trying to figure out how the stuff in scripture, and again, when Paul was doing it, it was basically the Old Testament and then the the spoken testimony of what Jesus did, right? Because again, a lot of the gospels hadn't been written at that point. The story was floating around. So at that time, it's just the story of the gospel of what we think of. And so he's got to figure out this sort of stuff. Well, then fast forward about like 300 years after this whole period of of Paul, right? We start getting real issues in the church of like whether or not Jesus is really God or not. And so we start having these councils called like the Council of Nicaea, the Council of Chalcedon and all this sort of stuff where they start articulating who Jesus is. Well again, they start putting together a theology to address a real world problem. But something subtle starts to happen in the way that they're putting together theology is it becomes a little bit more academic. It becomes a little bit more about just that thinking through and solving the problem. And for a lot of people, it starts to miss out on the actual lived life experience. Now, that doesn't mean it's, it, it isn't important. It's extremely important because, again, this is just a peek into the future, I think, of what we're going to get into. But if we talk about whether or not Jesus is fully God and fully man, what you believe about that is going to affect the way that you live your life because it's going to affect the way that you follow Jesus. For instance, if you don't think that Jesus was fully man, he was only God, he was just looking like a human walking around, you're not going to take seriously the fact that Jesus actually struggled with the temptations.
1: He's not a human. He doesn't have that human connection to be able to understand what it's like to be subject to... A very trying moment.
0: That's right. He doesn't under, Jesus wasn't really hungry after fasting for 40 days in the desert. He didn't, didn't, have, really, didn't
1: really have a stomach. He yeah. didn't really have any cravings.
0: So it's just a nice story, but it doesn't really mean anything for us. Whereas if he's fully man in that moment, all of the sudden he really does relate to us. And the fact that he can overcome it tells us something about what we're capable of doing. And so then we start. Now we know why. Now we can start asking how. Well, how did Jesus overcome temptation in that moment? And how Jesus overcame it says something to us about how we can overcome temptation in our moments of trial and tribulation. Fast forward a little bit further into into history. There's all kinds of different stuff that starts taking place. But I I think one of the the biggest hearts of um, when theology I think really really went awry is during the enlightenment period so what we have during the enlightenment period around like 1700s and stuff like that is we have the rise of all these other academic disciplines of like the hard sciences and empiricism and things like that um the humanities in in collegiate studies that we call them the humanities things like you know uh, psychology sociology all those sorts of things that things aren't that we're studying things like human nature and they're really abstract, not like the hard sciences where we're looking under a microscope and we're looking at things and we can test and measure. Like the, the humanities, which theology is one of them, is much, more hard, much harder to quantify. We can't put a hard number on things because people vary. You know, we can get estimates. We can say like this group of people react in this sort of a way, but it's always a generalization. It's, there's never a, a hard number that we can say. This always happens when people are in this situation. Um, but what happens when, the, when those hard sciences come to light is they employ the scientific method I love it. But it took academic rigor to a different level that the humanities felt that they had to keep up with. Now everything was about research and publishing and proving, beyond a shadow of a doubt through the scientific method, that something was true. So that's what truth became during the Enlightenment period of time. And there was all kinds of other assaults on religion and you know did some damage to what religion was and anyway we i won't we won't have to we don't need to go into Just that google right now the
1: word demythologizing if you want to demythologizing exactly that's a good starting point and
0: deism like what happened from you know going from a theistic worldview to a deistic worldview that might be harder to google but anyway <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> um so theology gets caught up in this same cycle of it needing to a rise to the occasion and become an empirical science. And so a lot of what th- uh, theology becomes now is just doing research into really deep abstract ideas in order to, uh, you know, sort of come up with uh, some sort of a theory or thesis that really can't necessarily be proved. Or... And so it becomes more and more disconnected from life.
1: Well, it feels kind of like you're just creating a, like everybody's going about creating a system of theology. Mm-hmm. It's a set of rules. It's a set of understandings that we have. And the work in theology, or some people think that the books that are written about theology are just things that pertain to just that system. And we've kind of put that system up as its own self contained little thing. And, um, it is really similar to the way that i and i'm not an expert but it is really similar to the way that i understand uh some things in the world of physics to be we've got a few different theories about how things actually function and the work is about showing that those those theories are internally consistent in hopes that they will actually be yep. the actual way that things work yeah um and it's like theology sometimes gets put on this pedestal where we're just working on making sure that the system is in and of itself consistent. Yeah. And we can all agree on a set of rules, but then we've we've taken that up to a level that's so high that people can't really understand what's going on unless they're really inside of that system. They've been in it studying it for decades. They know how to play by the rules. Yeah.
0: And so and the theologians who come up with that system aren't concerned with the day-to-day life right so they they never try huge, to apply it
1: huge gap yes enter daily growth discipleship everyday moments of life
0: <laughs> <laughs> that's right and so we are that is what we're passionate about that's what we started theology in progress to do is to try to figure out how a lot of these seemingly abstract concepts in theology, these systems that we come up with apply to our everyday life. And um, it's because while we were in seminary and Bible college, we recognized that these things impacted our life. Like once we started learning about them, it became an, a, a huge awakening to say, man, the, like I changed my view on that and it completely changes the way I view scripture. In fact, we, we both recently um, underwent a theological shift reading Dallas Willard's book, uh, "The Divine Conspiracy." Yep. So, in in that, we're looking at the Beatitudes. All throughout my Bible college and seminary years, I yeah, view way the, back
1: through Sunday school too.
0: Oh, uh, yep. Uh, again, and this is a like big entire problem. life, up there yeah, yeah, yeah. But through my, but I was studying this stuff, and I came up with a conclusion. Was my is oh, what yeah, I'm trying yeah, to yeah. like. Yeah, but you're right. Mo- many people have this. When we read the Beatitudes, we see them as statements that we should live up to, Like we have to try to achieve the thing that Jesus said, these people are blessed because they are poor in spirit, because they are meek, because they are righteous. So the answer a lot of times we apply is become, try to be poor in spirit, try to be righteous try to be meek. Try, try to, to be, be peacemakers. Try to be peacemakers, and then you will what? Get the blessing. Well, Dallas Willard totally throws that completely out. And he's doing it because he's using a theological framework, a system to look at that. And he says, "No. What is Jesus doing here? He's preaching to people to announce the kingdom of God because again, if you look at scripture and you study it, you you see that the entire Jewish hope was the arrival of a savior who is going to set them free from foreign uh, captors? In this case, at this point in time, it was Rome. Rome ruled over uh, the Jews, and so that's that's what their hope is. That's what their expectation is. Many, many people then in this Jewish audience that he's preaching to are some of the poorest, downtrodden, upon people of society. And so then what Jesus is saying, he's using this by way of illustration, and he's saying, no, 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 here's the good news of the gospel. Even if you are poor in spirit, you are blessed. Even if you do seek righteousness, you are blessed. Even if you are a peacemaker, you are blessed. And why are you blessed? Because everybody The poor in spirit who are the lowest of the low. That's not something you want to strive for. This is a state thrust upon them. It's a victim state. It's not something you should have. And I
1: really look at that compared, like Dallas Willard made the connection to the Pharisees. The Pharisees would have been rich in spirit. Yes. They knew the rules. They
0: had, quote
1: unquote, a close relationship with God, even though they really didn't. But they were the ones who were rich in spiritual things. When the people like the tax collectors, the prostitutes, those other people, they were poor when it came to spiritual things. Mm-hmm. But even to the tax collectors and the prostitutes, the kingdom of God came. That's right. And because of that, they had a blessing in front of them.
0: That's right. And so... And it just
1: goes on and on down the entire list of Beatitudes.
0: Yep. And so, but that shifts the way theologically you think about what Jesus is saying there, and that it changes the way you live your life. Because again, now I'm not trying to attain poorness in spirit. Because that's not something Jesus actually wants for us. Again, the point is, is that we are blessed. We no longer have to be poor in spirit because we have equal access to the kingdom of God. We can walk and live this life in Christ. Um, well, oh my goodness, how does that not change your life? Now, first of you went from trying to attain something to be poor in spirit to now recognizing that you have full access to the kingdom of god without having to do works righteousness anything
1: it's already here i don't like you go from
0: work 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 work
1: work. oh well i guess i guess i don't have much left to do then that's right that's right (laughs) and that's the
0: point that's the point that's the good news and and for those who have already been seeking righteousness who are really really devout and 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 desirous of that guess what you're going to find it (laughs) Because like now it's here. Because now it's here. Exactly. Like, That's is the point. And so it changes your life to know this stuff, man. It, like, it absolutely does. The problem is, and this is my personal pet peeve with the way we talk about theology and, and a lot of preaching is done today. Get
1: on that soapbox.
0: Is it, doesn't, it doesn't connect those two things. It doesn't really show how, those, how the one thing is connected to the other, the theology of like, okay, yeah, so what? Like, what does it matter? Like, again, if, if, if we hadn't explained how the shift in thinking about the Beatitudes changed your life, if we just said, oh, yeah, there's two theories out there of the way that we could approach the Beatitudes, because that's true. You can th- think of it as Jesus is being prescriptive, and he's saying that this is how you have to go about living your life in order to attain the kingdom of God. Or we can say it's prescriptive, and we can say these are the descriptions of the people that even though they are in this state, they get the kingdom of God. Okay, well, if you didn't hear the last 15 seconds of what I said because I was using words like prescriptive and descriptive and talking about it really dry and academically, that's perfectly fine because that's, that's boring. <laughs> like That's what <laughs> academics do is we talk about things in, in that boring language, but we don't have to do that when, we, when we're talking about living a lifestyle of discipleship. We can say, no, 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 theology is important because it changes the way you live your life. And so I, that's what I want to see happen a lot more within the church. And that's what I want to see. That's why we're here with Daily Growth Discipleship is because we want to dig into these issues and apply them to our everyday life because they matter. They will change the way you live your life if you, if you take the time to dig deep into them and uh, apply them to your life properly. So a few other questions people ask a lot of times and so i've been getting one of uh, i'm, I'm going to read a bunch of questions from a, a listener who's been asking some of these questions and uh, a lot of you guys may have these questions but you 've never really articulated them again um, another slight problem with the church and the way we approach theology is there are certain questions that are taboo they're off they're off limits because it's it seems like we're bad Christians if we ask these questions, but most of us have these questions and we're just a little afraid of what other people might think if we ask them or we think everybody else has them figured out and we're the only ones struggling and so we have to, you know, just act like, yeah, 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 no, that's perfectly fine. We'll we're we're, we're going to go with it. So we've got and we're not going to cover all these questions. I just want to read some of them just by way of example. I do want to do some sort of format where we do cover them, maybe a webinar or something like that and we can get a group of people together and and just really dig into them and and talk about them because the answers are the answers are a little bit nuanced but they're really really cool (laughs) once you start digging into them so let us know on
1: facebook if you want to have a webinar where we just get into the details of all this stuff
0: yes because we definitely will set that up um but certain things like why is the bible authoritative that's a really good question people don't ask that question out loud we say it a lot the bible is the only authoritative infallible word of god but why
1: and if you ask that question, it feels like you're challenging the authority that's already yes. there. And, I don't know, you, you might be worried that somebody's going to look down on you. Maybe if you've asked that question, they have looked down on you. Yep. Because how dare you question the authority of the Bible?
0: Yeah, exactly. But, but that, you're not challenging the authority, especially if you're genuine. And by the way, if you are challenging its authority, that's okay, too. <laughs> Guess what? God is big enough that he wants you... To ask the deep, hard questions, because, and if you if you believe something that can't handle a deep, hard question like that, and to be challenged a little bit, it's probably not worth believing in anyway.
1: Well, we firmly believe that there, if there is any truth to be found, it is worth asking questions about. Absolutely, it's not going to harm the truth to be questioned.
0: That's absolutely right. And so, that's what you are really doing when you ask a question like, "Is the Bible authoritative?" Is you're digging deeper. You no longer want to just rest on the laurels of the people who came before. And it's like, well, I guess they, they went through some theological discovery. They realized that the Bible is authoritative. That might be okay for a young Christian to just have to take with faith. But as you mature in your faith, you need to start owning those answers yourself. And so these are the sorts of questions you start asking. Well, is the Bible authoritative? Like, well, why? I, I realize I don't actually know. I mean, there's that one verse about the Bible being authoritative and profitable for teaching and all that sort of stuff, but like, the Bible says that the Bible is profitable, you know. So why would I believe the Bible if the Bible's the only source that's telling me about the Bible? That, that's a worthwhile question for asking. That's a tough one.
1: It is. Other Which, ones... By the way, spoiler alert, people have gone back and forth over that for 2,000 years, so...
0: Yep you're not alone. Well, see, and here's the other paradox when we start talking about theology. There's really nothing new in theology. So that that's one of the things that drives like theology to get more and more abstract is because again, it's it's people falling prey newness. to the con- yeah, it's falling prey to that constant scientific discovery method, which by the way, physics is kind of stuck in right now too, but anyway, I digress. <laughs> for people who <laughs> maybe mildly interested in it, it reminds me of
1: the scene from the big bang theory what's yep. new in physics
0: oh nothing nothing <laughs> exactly <laughs> well it's the same the same is true in I'm theology sure pick up. <laughs> there is nothing new in theology like you know ecclesiastes covered this pretty well right there's nothing new under the sun
1: and to go back to uh dallas willard who we referenced earlier mm. um I think it's in the introduction yeah. of The Divine cons- Conspiracy. He says, I'm not writing anything new here. If I were, I wouldn't write it. That's right. <laughs> and and really, that, that just gets back to this, it betrays a theology. Mm-hmm. We understand that the ultimate revelation of God came in Jesus Christ. Because of that, there's nothing new. There's nothing beyond that. Yeah. There are new ways of articulating that, yep. new ways of understanding that but there's nothing new about it the 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 pinnacle came with jesus christ Mm -hmm. and so yeah theology and so the point of
0: theology just becomes articulating that anew for each generation so that we can live our life according to the way christ were to live our life if he were here now because again yeah christ is the pinnacle but guess what we are not to mimic everything that christ did because we would have to live as if we were first century jews no electricity walking around with different
1: clothes wearing sandals we would all
0: have to be carpenters and then
1: eating reclining at a table we wouldn't be allowed to sit in chairs while we're eating at a table i mean there's all kinds of stuff we could go there
0: yeah exactly so that's not that's not the purpose of it but we're dealing with problems that the bible never addressed explicitly because guess what they didn't have cell phones back then and have air travel back then <laughs> like there's all this stuff that we have now that they didn't have back then it was beyond the scope this is where theology says who is god what does what does the life of christ show us about god and then how are how is it that we are supposed to live today in the 21st century 2020 in a in a lifestyle that would have mimicked christ
1: which to connect this back to what with what we were saying about Paul. That's what he was doing when he's telling mm-hmm. the, First Corinthian, or the Corinthians and First Corinthians how to go about solving some of these problems. These things weren't necessarily addressed in the Old Testament Scriptures, yep. but Paul is looking at the Old Testament Scriptures, he's looking at the teachings of Christ, and he's putting all these things together and reasoning mm-hmm. how should we live our lives now in light of this revelation. Yep,
0: A great example is when he talks about uh, eating meat sacrificed to idols yep. there. Right? Because again, if you look at the Old Testament, strictly forbidden to yep. certain kinds of meat and especially uh, meat sacrificed to foreign gods, that would have been, it wouldn't have even been like a thought for the Jews. That would have been so incredibly uh, idolatrous that they wouldn't ask those things. But knowing what we know now because of, because of the life of Christ and, and, and because of that in Corinth, it was the major source of food distribution. Is that
1: it's hard to find anything that wasn't sacrificed to an idol?
0: That's right, and so th- this is where then doing some deeper biblical studies really comes in handy. As you look into the culture, you can you can dig deep and say, okay, well, like that's the way meat was produced back then: is you slaughtered an animal in sacrifice to a particular god. And so, if you're looking at the the, the Greek pantheons, uh, you know you can sacrifice it to a bunch of different gods, and then you can offer that meat, and then by Going down to the market and buying that meat, you you are patronizing that god. You you are giving money to that god, similar to the way that you might go to the church and give money to the church. So it's a good question to ask if you're if you're a Christian. Like, oh man, I, I was patronizing the uh you know the temple of Zeus down there, and that's where I got all my prime rib. Uh, can I do that anymore? Like, or do I have to be a vegetarian now? <laughs> and Which, uh, by
1: the way, we seem to have done stuff like that. Recently, when we talk about oh well, we can't go as Christians to Target or we can't shop here, we can't shop there, Mm. we can't go to Starbucks because, anyway, I digress. Nope, that's a problem's the same.
0: The problem changed. That's right. That's right. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the same theological issue at play, but the way that it plays out in our modern life is very different. Absolutely. And so, are you sinning by going and buying meat? that was sacrificed to idols? Are you taking into yourself a part of that false demonic spirit by eating that meat? Are you inviting evil spirits into you? These are all questions that the early church had to face. And so we can look at Paul's instruction to them and we can see the theology starting to play out. No, of course not. We know that those idols, that idol of Zeus is nothing more than stone and clay. So if that's all, if you recognize that and you're able to eat that with a free conscience, man, go ahead, enjoy it. Eat that prime rib. Invite me over. I want to come. Like let's do it. <laughs> but if you are saved out of that and eating that represents something for you that is deeply. Emotional and spiritually involved, and you cannot divorce that. Like you can't separate that. It it represents too much of your sinful past. Then, by all means, abstain. Don't, don't, don't eat it. Maybe that means you do have to be vegetarian for a while. Like there are great stories of people who, who get saved, and um, like let's say they they get saved in certain types of music, were very instrumental in their pre-Christian life. And so, for them listening to, like, let's just say rock music because it gets, you know, it's an easy target. And, and I know this is true. I've heard this from many people, right? Rock music could represent a lifestyle for those people that is very, very not pleasing to Christ. And so, for them, they have to abstain. Doesn't mean everybody has to abstain from rock music because, like me, I didn't grow up listening to rock music because, by the way, my parents were some of these people who got saved out of rock music. Yeah. And so, for me, it didn't represent anything. It was just, Good music. <laughs> and so, um so it didn't mean anything to me. It was just, okay, like that's music. I don't understand what, what the deal is. And, and then for those people, though, sometimes a certain period of time can elapse and then they can go back to it. And it's not a problem for them anymore because it's just, you know, it, it's a non issue. No,
1: for others, I mean, they were in that life of whatever it was before, they get saved and. It's nothing to continue in that life. I mean, yeah, they don't they don't go out and participate in the same things that they did before. Yeah, but it's it's almost like the they can listen to the music and it doesn't actually affect the mm-hmm. way that they're thinking now. It doesn't. Have I like that to say the connection. reasons
0: why they do it have changed.
1: Yeah, 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 and, and maybe they even switch over to like Christian rock, which yeah. sometimes isn't as good. There's some good stuff out there, but sometimes it's not as good. Um, and so it's not necessarily the, anything connected to the genre. Mm-hmm. It's just, I just listen to the music.
0: Yes, exactly.
1: And so the point is people are going to be different.
0: Yeah. People are going to be different. And that's what Paul is instructing them. It's not a law. He's not putting down a new law. It would have been much easier to say, oh, absolutely. Don't eat meat, sacrificed to idols. Or yes, do eat meat, sacrificed to idols. Like it would be really easy to do either one of those things, but he doesn't. He says both. And then it depends on the person. Again, Dallas Willard points this out really, really well, that Jesus, during the Sermon on the Mount, which comes right after the Beatitudes section, <laughs> is he's not laying down a new law. A lot of times people look at that, those uh, three chapters there in Matthew 5 through 7, and he says um, – people think of that as like the, the, the New Testament law. And he's like, absolutely not. That is not the New Testament law. The New Testament law would have to be volumes and volumes larger if it was a law because what do laws do? They cover every single different way a certain thing could go down, and Jesus is extremely, extremely vague on those sorts of things. Yep, he's just like, "Hey, guess what? Love your neighbor." And when yeah, I (laughs)
1: was supposed to say, when pushed, he makes it even simpler than it's ever been.
0: That's right. So we want to ask questions like, "Well, what do you mean by love your neighbor? Like, what if they like hit me and like? So how do I love them back? Do I?" Like, maybe I do need to push them back. Maybe that's the, we hear this a lot. Maybe that's the most loving thing that we could possibly do is to push them back so that they don't push anybody else. We're, in fact, we're loving everybody else by making sure that that guy gets really, really pushed so that he can't hurt (laughs) anybody else. Now, I have just defined what loving my you know, Jesus doesn't say that. He doesn't go into all of those things, right? It's like, well, if somebody, you know, lends you a cup of flour, how much do I have to give them back? What, What is loving? That's the law. This isn't this is the point. We're not under that law. This is a new life of grace where the ethic, the the thing that we should really be striving for is what is the most loving thing for that person,
1: which is a really uncomfortable thing for us to handle because we're so used to the safety and comfort of rules that when those start to to disappear, it's almost like We've lost our sense of security. We, don't, we no longer know exactly what to do. And I think God does that because He's calling us to grow up. He wants us to mature. He wants us to be like Him, not just do like Him. And I think that's, I think the way that we raise our kids is a prime example of that. Initially, the first few years of life, we tell them, because I said so. Mm hmm. It's, it's just too much for their minds to comprehend why touching the stove is a bad idea or why <laughs> running outside the house unsupervised is a bad idea or why playing in the street is a bad idea. It's just too much for them to comprehend. And so they have to be okay with, because I said so. Mm-hmm. And there's a certain, I mean, you can watch the way that, that kids develop sometimes. That there's a real safety and security in those things because they know what the expectations are. They know what the rules are and they can thrive in that situation. But as they grow up, they need to understand that you don't touch the stove because it's hot, it will burn you, it will hurt, and then your skin will be damaged even deeper than that damage could occur. All these different reasons, and if you try to set a law down for every single one of those reasons in life, it would be absurd yep it just it just can't be done yep and so I mean, we inherently know this as adults there's a kind of this understood principle of living that we have as, as we go about life, we don't do things that could put us in danger. That mm-hmm. It's just, you try, you try to do that out of self-preservation, um, and, that, and that's kind of a principle. And it's, kind of, it's similar to what Jesus was trying to teach us when he said, love God, love your neighbor. Mm-hmm. Those are really overly simplistic principles with no law attached to them. Yep. There's no details about how we're supposed to do that. Instead, they're principles. And like you were saying, Chris, the problem is we start to interpret those principles in a different way. Yeah. Some of us say, oh, yeah, loving somebody is pushing them harder so that they don't push anybody else. And others, if you're more of a pacifist, say, well, I should never push anybody and I should Mm -hmm. allow God to handle that. And if they want to push me, that's okay. I'll let God deal with it. Yep. Um, And... We go round and round about these different ways of interpreting what it means to live the Christian life, live out, love God, love your neighbor in the everyday moments of life. And that's what we're trying to do as we look at things like the authority of Scripture. It's what we're trying to do when we look at theology. We're trying to bring this stuff down and not find a way to make a rule out of the thing, but find a way for us to connect the principle with how we're actually living our lives.
0: Yeah. And what's, what's in the best interest, truly, from God's perspective, for the people around us.
1: Thanks so much for listening today, everyone. We've really enjoyed having this longer-form conversation, and we'd really love to hear from you and see what you think about these longer-form conversations as well. We're always looking for new ways to grow, new ways to improve. And if you'd prefer to listen to a 45-minute conversation as opposed to a few 15- to 20-minute conversations, we would love to know that because we want to produce content that you want to listen to. So let us know. Give us a shout-out on Facebook or Instagram or send us an email at dailygrowthdiscipleship at gmail.com and let us know what you think.
0: You can also comment on the episode page on the website. So if that's where you're listening to this podcast, you can go down there and comment there as well. How can you create a lifestyle of discipleship? Most Christians think discipleship is a program or a few practices thrown in at the beginning or end of the day. But we want to help you create a lifestyle where walking with Jesus throughout the day is not only possible, but natural. And we have a tool that's going to help you do just that.
1: Thanks for listening to this episode of the Daily Growth Discipleship Podcast. If you like what you've heard this week, give us a review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast player you use. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to stay up to date on everything happening at Daily Growth Discipleship, go to dailygrowthdiscipleship.com and subscribe for free. You can also subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify.